And uh, if you could keep that, uh, your Bibles open for a cheeky little look at John 7, because it's quite complicated, this one. And, well, for me, anyway. Um, not for you, but for me. And as we come to this passage, <coughs> uh, remember the, what the children wrote there. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we've got a passage here, and the point is everybody walks out of Park End Church full of life, the life of God. And if you've already got it, even more of it. And this one's called, uh, help, I don't believe or trust Jesus. What can I do to make sure I'm really full of life? So welcome to church. And in church, we tackle the huge problem that we default to as humans, and it's this, unbelief. Unbelief. Even Christians will say, oh, I do believe, but I, I struggle with unbelief. Help, help. So we're going to let Jesus explain it and help us with it. So take five seconds to think in your minds. Uh, well, where else would you think other than in your minds? But think in your minds. Uh, what is unbelief? What does it look like? I'll give you five So, you might have said, uh, like an atheist, obviously an unbeliever, or an agnostic, someone who hates God, someone who mocks God or Christians, someone who like does that awkward thing and ruffles your hair and goes, oh, your faith is lovely for you, love, if it's alright for you, it's lovely, and then they don't do anything about it. Maybe that's what you thought of. Maybe you thought about churches like um, the Church of England. Here's some statistics. You might think this is linked to unbelief. Church of England has seen the greatest decline in its numbers out of all the churches. The membership has more than halved from 40.3% of the population in 1983 to 16% in 20... Well, that was probably five years ago. Maybe it's having a bump this weekend because of the Queen's passing, but generally you might think, well, something's going... That's unbelief, not, not even like... That the UK isn't believing. You might have thought of people that never really join in church life and they're always pursuing other dreams like education or money, no time for church. Maybe that's what came to mind. Or maybe you thought it's people who are embarrassed about being a Christian and they never tell. Anyone, is that unbelief? We hide it away, something that we all do to our shame. All right, so marks out of 10, probably five or six, because Jesus has got, if those were your answers, Jesus has got another one. And it's really interesting. And in John 7, he sort of spells out what unbelief is according to Jesus. And it's actually none of those things. <clears throat> I remember we're thinking, oh, is this us? Can we improve? Can we get rescued? Can we know God better? Help us. So, in John 7... Jesus' brothers are letting him down a bit with unbelief. And James is there, Joseph, and Judas is there, not Iscariot, uh, the other one. And they've seen Jesus do miraculous things. They've seen them do it recently in John chapter 5. He heals a, a lame man on, a, on the Sabbath. And he even talks about that in chapter 7. He says, you saw me do that in verses 21 and 23. But... Even though they've seen that, here's verse 5 again, for even his own brothers did not believe him. So they've seen him do miracles, 
And it gets even more interesting, well I think it does, because in verses 3 to 4 of John 7, in this complicated theme, Jesus' brothers said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples and everybody will see the miracles that you do. No one wants you to do it in private. Go out and do it in public. Go and do what you do in front of people. So they've seen he can do miracles. They tell him to go and do more miracles in public. They believe it. But then the text says they did that because they don't believe. Isn't that funny? Well, no. So we're asking ourselves, well, what is unbelief? Well, let's just firmly establish this point, though. Unbelief doesn't always mean being embarrassed, hiding away, or not being convinced that Jesus is really super powerful. Because they believe that here, but they're still unbelieving. They think he's really powerful. Um, Adolf Hitler, um, probably not a Christian, judging by his life, um, though we never know what happens between a man and God in the last few moments, I appreciate that. But evidence is pointing towards probably not a Christian. However, he believed. He believed. And I don't know if you know this, uh, he had the Nazis write on all of their belts, God with us. He actually wrote his sort of own version of the Bible and printed 100,000 copies of it and gave it out to everyone in the army. He had 12 commandments instead of 10, but to him, Jesus was an Aryan, uh, not a Jew. He believed in Jesus, but where he broke away, obviously he broke from this and made his own one up with some changes which better suited him. So he believed, but he didn't necessarily live it the way that Jesus wanted him to. So now we're getting in the ballpark of Jesus and what he wants us to be helped with. Like this area of unbelief. What is it? What is it that the Lord wants us to change us today? What is unbelief according to Jesus? Good question. Well, I've sort of got the answer. I think there's two answers to what is unbelief according to Jesus and they feed into each other. Okay. Oh, and what are they? Well, I think we can see this. They wanted him to go to the feast and do miracles. He said, no, I'm not going. But, if you noticed in the reading, he did later go to the feast on his own terms. Why? Well, verse 6, uh, Jesus told them the time had... So, wait, Jesus, go do those miracles that you do. Heal people and do the water and the wine stuff. We like that. And he says, the, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. But for me, my time has not come. Okay? So, boys, um, what he means is, I don't want to go there and be captured and killed yet. Because that's probably what's going to happen to me. You want me to go and do miracles. I don't want to go publicly and do miracles because they might kill me. And I, it's not my time to die yet. A few chapters later, he says, now it's my time. And he goes and gets crucified. Um, so, there's that bit. Now, don't worry if you're all confused. I'm going to confuse us even more and then maybe slightly unconfuse us in a few moments. But going further into confusion, according to Jesus, therefore, follow this bit, his death can't be jeopardized. So his death is more important to him than going to do miracles in public. Right? Don't ruin my death thing yet. It's not the right time. 
So I'm not going there to do miracles. So according to Jesus, he places value on his death on the cross more than even healing people in the meantime. Right? And the disciples are not believing that. They think, go and heal people's limbs. That's the most important thing. And he's thinking, that's not the most important thing. You're not believing me yet. I have to die on the cross to save people from sin and death and bring them to heaven. That's, that's the real job. You don't believe me. You want me as a divine vending machine to keep helping people's eyes and limbs and things like that. Which is important, but you're unbelieving my great work. And that's the first bit. Which is why he doesn't go and do miracles, because his time has not yet come. I'm not going to the feast yet. And then, the second reason, I think, for their unbelief in this passage is he doesn't want to go and do miracles. He wants to go and do something else. And that was in verses 14 to 18, where he goes and he starts teaching people instead. I'm not going to do the vending machine stuff this time round because it's not my time. But I am going to sneak there in secret and start teaching people. And in verses 14 to 18, it just says he begins bringing the word of God. Why? Because according to Jesus, teaching lasts longer than healing limbs. A changed heart from Jesus' words, which get into our brains and enlighten our hearts and minds, transform us way beyond whether our hands are healed or we can see with our eyes or we get a good bank account or there's food in the fridge. He's more concerned that people leave Park End with their hearts warmed towards the living God because that will get you through life more than fixing your leg, fixing your heart. And they don't believe that. They want him to do the tricks. He wants to bring the word of God. So boys... You don't quite believe me. And verse 16 says he brings the word of God with the authority of heaven. And he teaches about the glory of God and the world to come and how we can get ready for that. And so to conclude, the complicated first chunk of this sermon, unbelief, according to John chapter 7, is this. Using Jesus for short-term fixes instead of being fixed inside by his words and who he is and getting ready for the world to come and having our sins forgiven and death defeated and being taken to glory is using him for short-term stuff instead of that and and unbelief is being satisfied in life without Jesus' teaching. Oh, I'll have his forgiveness but who cares what he thinks about anything else? Not interested in the word, you just do the forgiving bit, that's your job. And then zip it, because I want to carry on exactly how I am in every area of my life going forward. You be the vending machine, I'll be my own Lord, thank you very much. You saviour, me Lord. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to teach. I'm here to teach. So, help, I don't believe or trust Jesus, how can I be sure? What's Jesus' answer? Get my word in you. Get it in. Cross-soaked, crucifixion-saturated, Jesus-centered 
words of God running through Park End church members' minds and hearts and veins so we just bleed Jesus, even if he doesn't heal our bad ankle. And if he just healed my leg, then I believe. Jesus says, no, give the Bible a go. Give my words a go. Listen to my teaching. Join a church and plug into the word of the Lord and live it out and you'll see what it does to you. You will believe. Blow off the dust of your daily reading books and start again. It's September. Go to house groups with Phil. Uh, join the Thursday club. Go to prayer meeting and pray with God's people. Connect. Get your audio Bibles going again on your dog walks. Get your mind over your mattress at 6 a.m. in the morning and read a psalm. That will bring belief. Test me in this, says the Lord. I'm not doing the miracles today. I'm going to teach and then I'm going to die for sinners. That is going to save the world. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is unbelief in John chapter 7. And so for the remaining part of this, I just want to try and plug home why, why, the word of God is tremendous. There's an author, he's called Jared Wilson, and he says this, the bottom line of all of our excuses for not reading the Bible or enjoying the word of God is a functional disbelief that God actually speaks in it. If we truly believed God the creator who ordains and sustains all things wrote this book, you couldn't keep us away from it so it's a functional disbelief keep off the grass jesus in my life i've got your forgiveness thank you very much but clear off but jesus like that belief is you don't say what well, i've got to read this and do what it says you actually think what well, i get to read this and do what it says what a privilege i believe that this is good for me and i'm going to live the way of jesus all the days of my life that's where he wants us to be as a church. So for the remaining chunk, um, one of the privileges of the word of God is it says you get to put on the mind of Christ. Put on the mind of Christ. That's what this helps with. That's what church life helps with. Obviously, Jesus is the center of all of the Bible. He says that. He says Moses and the law and the prophets all wrote about Jesus. And it just shows different ways about how amazing Jesus is. Is And the more we learn about him, the more we can act like him in a world that needs it so desperately. Because everybody in this room is going to leave here and live according to a word or a set of principles. Whether you're Hitler or Her Majesty, humans live by words. The word. A word. And the problem, according to Jesus, is if humans are left to just make up things about ourselves and where we're going and how to live, it goes bananas very quickly. So Jesus wants to wade in. Boys, listen to me. I'm talking about my Father in heaven and he's got a word. So you can go home and you could turn the radio on and, or the TV and there'll be a thousand words on how you should live. Um, Ronaldo, there he is, he'll say something about life and how to live and... Be super fit and all your dreams will come true if you're a footballer and drink water. Don't drink Coca-Cola, drink water and be like me. All right, thank you very much. 
and then 50 million people live like that. Brilliant. Turn on um, YouTube, there's Joe Rogan, he's doing a podcast telling everybody how to live and what he thinks the way through life should be. Put the news on with Hugh Edwards, he might get a few words in on how he thinks we should live. And Rihanna, she'll release an album with lots of words on how she thinks people should live or the right way to live should be. We've all got morals and Kim Kardashian, she comes on with how we should look and how we should live and what real beauty is. And then, here's Jesus. Listen to my words. I got a word as well. Listen to it. Try me. There's another word. It's from my father. He's put it in a book. It's quite easy to follow. Trust it. Live it. It's better than Kim Kardashian. She's alright. But I'm better, says Jesus. I'm reading a historian at the moment. He's called Tom Holland. He's not a Christian. He's a secular historian. And he says this. He says... The West is utterly shaped, utterly shaped by this word. There's no escape. Utterly shaped. But at the moment, we've taken like the bones away and we've left the meat. So nobody really goes to church at the moment and everybody thinks Christians are losers and this is outdated and got no place in society. So there's the meat, put it over there. But we can't help but take the bones So he says the West at the moment is in this area of like suspended belief in Christianity, but we don't even realize it. It's just floating in the air. So he says there are morals that are ingrained in us, which are from God, but they're just floating because they're not grounded in the word of God anymore. It's a fascinating read. So he says we'll take a bit of morals and cut them from their source. In fact, there's another book I'm reading. It's called Christianity is the air that we breathe. In the West. No escape. Can't get away from it. And then he says, even secularism is a gift to the world from Christianity. Because today's strong sense of right and wrong is from the word of the Lord. Today's uh, desire to see the last first is from Christianity. This is what Tom Holland is arguing in his book Dominion. He says, but there's no narrative anymore. He says, we talk about the Nazis a lot, how evil they are. And we look at Putin at the moment, and online particularly, people call him Hitler. Why? Because it's in us to label something evil and dark, and we like being in the light and part of the team that are fighting away the dark. It's in us. We can't help but need in the light and dark narrative where light hopefully triumphs over the dark. But we've ripped it from the meat of where those things come from. The God of love, the God of light. He said when George Floyd was murdered, the reaction across the Western world was overtly religious. Taking the knee, praise, the outcry for the oppressed. Um, forming poetical, poetic, liturgical sound bites, all hugely religious. And in recent weeks, with the passing of Her Majesty, the Christian coverage all over the West, the sacral monarchy, the obvious weight of divine importance, of a life well lived, and the virtues of honesty, integrity, sacrificial Christ like service. It's everywhere. And Jesus says in John 7, and Tom Holland says in Dominion, 
we're, all, we're going to end up in one of two places then with all this suspended sort of whiff of Christianity. We'll either carry on making stuff up and moving further away and chopping and changing what's right and wrong and what meaning truly is. Or we'll go back to the church and we'll go back to the Christ. And in Jesus' lingo in John chapter 7, you'll either believe it or you won't. And guess what this area needs? The Kinkoid area, the Lanishan area, the Pentwin area, the Lanedin area, the Kates area. It needs to know that somewhere there's a church that believes it and can explain it. And I have a dream that churches go all and all out for the Lord and his word this year and beyond. More than we have done in a long time. Did you know, church members, that our unique selling point is the Bible? The weird, the wacky, all of the truths in the word of the Lord. You do not want me to stand up here on a Sunday and talk about climate change or money management in the energy crisis or how many times to wash your hands or how to put your mask on properly and when to take it off. The Christian church teaches something different, though those things are important. You need somewhere which is telling a narrative of why the world is as it is, not heard in the newsreels at the moment. It's not the priest's job to talk about energy bills. You don't want it. And Jesus says it doesn't really help anyone in the long run. Here, we come to the living God. Tom Holland says there's a curse at the moment. It's called the curse of thought for the day. He says, whenever he turns on thought for the day, all denominations, all religions end up saying exactly the same bland stuff and is not affecting anybody. He says you can fast forward uh, thought for the day just to get to the end where they say, right, be kind to everybody and watch your carbon footprint. And that's it. He says the job of the church, though, is to teach the text. That's our selling point. That's where we're different. How do I be a good husband? How do I use my singleness? How should men be? How should women be? How should I act towards politicians? What happens when I die? How should I treat someone that's hurt me? Who is God? Why did Jesus say that he's the only way? What happens when I die? And how do I handle my loneliness on the way? It's all in the words of the Christ. Someone once said this. At the moment, church leaders are ashamed of the Bible. That's like a theater owner running the globe and never putting on Shakespeare. I'll say that again because you obviously didn't get it. Church leaders ashamed of the Bible are like theater owners running the globe and never putting on Shakespeare. That's all people come for. It's all we've got. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from my mouth. Can I put it like this? In Park End, people should know the characters of the Bible more than they know the characters of Lord of the Rings. And I like Lord of the Rings. Can I put it like this? It would benefit our children more if they know the Lord's Prayer before they know the players of the Welsh rugby team. And I like the Welsh rugby team. And on a personal note, as I wrap the urgency up to press upon you the glory of this text and what a shame it is that there's dust gathering on it and how the nation needs us to blow the dust away. How the word of God spoke to me a few times recently. You probably don't know this about me, but I am a worrier, an anxious worrier. Are you? I am. 
And I read in Matthew 7 the other day, do not worry. And I got a choice there in that morning when I read it. Worry or let the word of God truly change me, truly change me and affect me in a real way. And he goes on to say, don't worry about your work. Don't worry about your bodily health. Don't worry about your food. Don't worry about your finances. I've got it covered. I've got it covered. And the world needs to know where am I going and what am I doing? The Lord has got it covered. And they need to meet Christians who bleed the text. And they just know that when I meet a Christian, there's something about them. Their life is just covered by God. They believe it. Nothing affects our moods more, our worries more, our thoughts more, and our actions more than our view of God. And the Bible shapes who our view of God is. I'm burying someone again next week from a different church, a Christian. Along the way, I've met people who have said this to me. Owen, oh, uh, death is coming for all of us. Yes, I've done so much wrong. How am I going to get to heaven? How? Is the cross of Jesus and his penalty paid for sinners enough for me? What do you say when someone says that to you? I've done so much wrong. Is there any hope for me? I'll tell you what I said. A resounding yes. Yes, it is. All sins forgiven in Christ. And I'm not guessing. You'll be pleased to know that I didn't just make that up. Here it is. In this text, you'll find out more in Park End Church. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he's risen again on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. I didn't make that up. That's not an Owenism. That's Paul. He's better than Owen. Trust it. Trust the word. And as this person was dying, and many times this has happened, when I go and hold the hand of a dying person who needs to know the world to come is going to be blessed and full of glory and it's theirs and Jesus is going to carry them over the Jordan. What book do I take with me to read from, to give them hope? Shakespeare? No. Why? He's dead. He doesn't offer any hope. He died. Death got him. Plato? He's clever. I'll read you Plato now and you find Pythagoras. No, no good. Dead. Useless. What do I have in my hand? The word of the Lord Jesus Christ. The robust, infallible word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the author is alive. And I tell him death is defeated. In a few moments you will be with him. And I'm not making that up. And Park End doesn't make it up. We bleed the book. Peoples whose, life, whose Bibles are falling apart, usually have lives that aren't. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 7. And my dream is that I see more faces this year in house groups and church and Thursday. Faces I haven't seen before, all ready to hear and learn the word of the Lord. I'm sorry for a long and complicated sermon, but it's a complicated chapter. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's sing his praises. Thank you, Ben.